Man, yeah, isn't that awesome? We, wa- we wanted to share that story with you because it really exemplifies one of our cultural statements as a church that we are a family of nations and generations. And what we mean by that is literally God told us to make disciples of all nations. And then as the book of Revelation describes, there's people of every tribe and tongue. And so we wanted them to speak in their native language. And I hope you read all of that. And and that's just a shorter version of their story. We'll show a longer version in our year in recap right after Christmas, because we wanted to show you how the mission of the church is literally affecting nations and generations. And I love those two guys and their story. Uh, Cesar was just an employee of the company that we first hired years ago to clean our facility. Now he is a part of our church. And then you saw how Nelson came to our church as a gift to his wife. And I know that happens a lot of times with, with guys, but we wanted to share that with you. Just one story of how God is working in the lives of people in our church. And man, it is just amazing to see. And, and we want you to be a part of our church as well as those guys described. Now they are parting, a part of our teams that are serving. And I love how Nelson said it. Now he's trying to multiply that into other people. I'm like, yes, that is it. That is the vision of our church coming to life. And so if you're not a part of our church or you haven't gone through our welcome track, what we call our welcome track process, that's where you just get to know a little bit about us, know the mission and vision of our church, what it is that makes us, us, the cultural statements that I just referenced, there's 12 of them. And then if you want to start serving or get into a group, as they talked about, then you can go through our welcome track process. There's three steps to it. Two of them are online. The third one is in person. And so you can jump in at that uh, process anytime. And we would love for you to go through that so that you can get connected in our church. And who knows, we might be sharing your story one day of how God has worked in your life. And so we wanted to share that and celebrate that. If you see those two guys uh, here at our Canton location serving, tell them good job because they really do care for us as a church and a family. And I love seeing them serve and how God has used uh, this church to impact their life and how now they are part of the mission and vision of our church to impact your lives. And so make sure you tell them great job. Uh, and it's amazing to hear their story. All right, if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to John chapter eight. That's where we're gonna be today. In fact, we are closing out chapter eight today. We still got you know, you know, a lot of chapters to go in John, but we're gonna close out chapter eight today, which really kind of caps off a, a rather intense section of the gospel of John, because as I told you in the beginning, the first 11 chapters are about Jesus's public ministry, and this is where it's really kind of reaching a fever pitch, and you're gonna see that again today, where Jesus is turning up the heat on them, and therefore, likewise, they are turning up the heat on him. And we've been talking over the last several weeks how important it is to follow Jesus. As he said last week, if you abide in me, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so we're gonna jump off in that same uh, vein this week, uh, John chapter eight, verses 48, and then we'll work our way down to the end of the chapter, verse 59, all right? Before we do, as always, though, pray with me, and then we'll get into the text, all right? Let's pray. Father, we want to uh, always stop and acknowledge um, you and how we want to honor you, um, not only in this time where we are opening up your word to speak to us, but as we have now sung to you, songs about you that are true and how we want to trust in you. And God, we want to also acknowledge that we can't honor you. We can't trust you without you helping us. And so God, as always, we want to 
pause and ask you to fill us with your spirit, to uh, enable us to see and to know the truth that we are about to read in these verses, God, because as we saw last week, if we abide in your word, then we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. And so God, we know that there are people here that are not free um, in one way or another. Maybe they don't even know you and they haven't experienced that freedom. But then there's a lot of people that do know you, God, but they're still struggling in certain areas of their life. And God, I pray today that you would help us to see that if we abide in your words, we'll know the truth and it'll set us free. But God, again, we know we can't do that. So would you help us now? Fill us with your spirit, God, so that we can live this truth and then experience that freedom. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, John chapter eight, verse 48, I'll do 48 to 51, and then we'll chat about it because you have to remember context. Again, Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people that believed him, and he wanted them to understand what it meant to believe in him. Because so often we can wrongly think that there's belief and it's somehow detached from our behavior. But as I told you last week, believing him really is following him and living and lining up our behaviors to what he says. And if we did that, he told us a promise last week that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. But that's not the only promise because you're going to see another one in this text. And that's what I want us to focus on. So let's go verse 48 and 49. It says this, The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Verse 15 and 51, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So again, Jesus is having this conversation with a group of people who have religious knowledge. And and Jesus isn't being anti-Jewish when he is having conversations with him, number one, because he's Jewish himself. And so he's talking about something that's not uniquely a Jewish problem, but is a human problem. All humans wrestle with who's going to be their father, And as we talked last week, at the end of the day, there's only two fathers. There's only God as our father and his house or the devil as father in his house. And how we live shows the direction that our life is going. And so Jesus is engaging with them in that conversation. And and last week, he said something that obviously they were offended by when he said that God was not their father, but the devil was their father. So the conversation's getting pretty heated. Now, I know you've never been in a heated conversation before, all right? So, so just imagine with me here, in those heated conversations that you've magically never had, right? I know that also in those conversations, you didn't go like um, personal in those conversations. And, and what I mean by that is you kept it strictly business. You just talked about the positions. You just talked about the policies. You didn't make personal attacks, right? You didn't say things like, you're just like your mother. You didn't say things like that, right? You didn't say like, you're just like your father. You didn't, you didn't go personal. And I know you didn't just go hysterical. You also didn't get historical, right? You didn't bring up everything that they've ever done. I know you've never done this stuff. So I know it's hard to imagine. I I know you've never seen anyone argue like this online, (laughs) 
You've never seen anyone start throwing personal jabs at people. So, so let me explain to you what's happening. This is a form of argumentation that they start engaging with, which I've mentioned this before, called ad hominem argument. And what that means is simply this. Instead of attacking the position, you start attacking the person. And the thought process behind it is, if I can discredit the person, then I don't have to deal with their positions. And in fact, obviously I was being in tongue in cheek, you know that this is the primary way that people argue today. They no longer engage in the position in gracious ways and give benefit of the doubt to the person, but they start making personal attacks. They start making derogatory statements because if I can attack the person, then I don't have to listen to the position. And, and what I'm trying to show to you is that's exactly how people argued against Jesus. So Jesus is familiar with this type of argumentation. But what I also want to show you is Jesus doesn't engage in the same type. He doesn't engage, and I mentioned this several times over the last few weeks, but I want to bring it up again because it is something culturally, it's not a new phenomenon for humans. Again, we already see, I mean, this was over 2,000 years ago, and humans are arguing this way. But now that we live in the advent of the internet, it becomes much easier and, and argumentation and conversations are happening much more rapidly than ever before. And, and I just wanna show you that Jesus doesn't engage in their tactics. And what I mean by that is this, notice the first thing that they call him. They say, are we not right in saying, you are a Samaritan? You are a Samaritan. You say, what's the big deal about that? The Jewish people hated the Samaritans. It was the, the worst form of human that existed on the earth because they were what they considered half-breeds. They were part Jewish, but they had married outside and had their own customs and did all these other things, and so they literally couldn't stand them. And I don't know who that group of people are to you, but we all have that type of group that we just don't like. And, and we can think this is the most derogatory statement that I could say about somebody. And a lot of times, especially here in the South, that might be somebody who cheers for the sports team that you don't like. So if you're a Georgia fan, maybe the worst thing that you could say somebody about somebody is they like Florida. Oh, those, oh, yeah, you're a Florida fan. We know what that means. You're the scum of the earth, right? Now, if you're Florida fans, then I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that's what, but if you are an OU fan, I am saying that, all right? <laughs> just, just joking, all right. Because if you don't know, I am a Texas fan. I grew up in Texas, and I cheer for the Longhorns. And it's been a bad decade, all right? And my theory is, when I moved out here, we played in the national championship, and it's been downhill ever since. So I think God is cursing them because I left the state, all right? Um, but I, I don't like OU. And, and the reason why I don't like OU is because they take all of our Texas high school football players and beat us with them. All right, that's why I don't like them because that shouldn't happen, right? I'm like, leave our players alone. We got them in our state, all right? But I don't know who that group is for you, but, but my point in, in, in saying all this is I'm trying to show you how they argue with Jesus is they're no longer attacking his positions, what he's saying. They're now attacking him as a person. And then they say the second thing, you have a demon, so you are this, you're the scum of the earth, and you have a demon. I mean, I can't think of two worst personal attacks that they could make on Jesus. 
But what I'm trying to show you is we follow Jesus. And so we are called to argue like Jesus argues. And notice he doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't respond the way that they do. He says, lovingly, I don't have a demon. But you dishonor me. And then he says this, I don't seek my own glory. Although there is one who seeks it and he's the judge. And here's something I want to connect for you. Because Jesus is arguing back with them from a state of position, from a state of truth. And what I'm trying to show you is this is how we should engage with the world. We, we do not adopt worldly tactics for a good, just cause. Jesus didn't. The, the end doesn't justify the means. Jesus keeps it real. And he says, listen, you're attacking me as a person, but I'm not going to attack you as a person. I'm going to refute what you're saying. And here's how you know I don't have a demon. I don't glorify myself. Now, let's think logically about this. Jesus just connected the act of having a demon to glorifying yourself. So let me say it in the reverse. If you and I live our lives glorifying ourselves, we are to follow, we're following demonic powers. We are living not in the way of Jesus, but in the way of a different father, the devil. And that's Jesus's primary argument back to them. He says, listen, I don't have a demon. And the way you know I don't have a demon is I don't glorify myself. Now think about this on a personal level. All of us glorify something. All of us glorify someone. And what I mean by glory, the word glory means to give weight to. That's literally what the word means. It means weighty. And so the idea of glory is whoever is the weightiest has the most power, deserves the most honor. And so when you're talking about weightiness, the idea is there's no one more weighty than God. There's no one more, I almost said more big than God. That's bad English, but that's good theology, right? There's no one who has more, class, has more weight. And we even talk about like throwing your weight around, right? What is that? The idea of me throwing my weight around is the concept of I'm saying I'm better than you. I'm bigger than you. I'm badder than you. That's the idea of glory. So if you and I, watch this, live our lives by the premise that I'm weightier than you, I'm more important than you, I'm more valuable than you, and I want you to know how valuable I am, then Jesus is just making the logical inference that that whole process is demonic. Now, let me go a step further and make this extremely practical. If I were the devil, something that I would create is apps where people love to post pictures of themselves. Think about it. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's satanic to post photos of yourself. But what is it in you and me that always wants to post photos of ourselves in the best light? 
in the best ways. Lindsay and I were having lunch last week with some friends of ours down in Atlanta, and we were sitting inside the restaurant, and just outside of the restaurant was a group that was coming in and waiting for their seat, and I don't know, there's probably about seven or eight of them, and they were all kind of talking, and then all of a sudden, one of them pulls out her phone, and, and the others are just talking, and she's kind of talking and laughing, and then all of a sudden, it went from laughing to like this like model face, like this, this face that that we make where it's like, I, I can't even make it good. Like there's, there's reels and, and videos that show you how to make it, like so that make it your model. And, and we were sitting in the restaurant looking out at her and just laughing. She didn't know that she was, you know, that we even knew. She for sure didn't know she was gonna be part of a sermon. <laughs> Which is why you gotta be careful hanging out with the pastor, all right? Just ask my kids. And so, but we're on the outside looking at this and, and just kind of laughing because what I'm thinking is she has no idea how ridiculous she looks to all of us. Now, again, is it simple or wrong to post a photo of yourself? No. I, I get some of you have jobs and, you, and that's part of it. But listen to me. But there's something in there. There's something about that process. Is your flesh, my flesh, trying to glorify ourselves? And what I'm trying to show you is that's not the way of Jesus. And here's why. Listen to how Jesus argues. He says, I don't seek my own glory. Why? Because there's one who seeks it for me. I don't have to seek my own glory. And this is where I wanna help you. That thing in us that always wants to do self-promotion, that thing in us that always wants to show ourselves in the best light because everybody's gotta think more about us. We got, they gotta think that we're weightier than we are. The only thing that counteracts that is to understand that the promise of God is if I do that, he actually opposes me and he will actually humble those who exalt themselves. I mean, the Bible says that. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. However, I shouldn't say however, I should say also, the opposite is true. If you humble yourself, he will exalt you. So here's how I want you to think. You wanna know why you don't have to spend that much time glorifying yourself? Because if you glorify God, he'll glorify you. If you humble yourself, he'll exalt you. That's how Jesus argues. I don't have to let you think that I'm better than I, I don't have to glorify myself. I don't have to post pictures of myself that paint myself in this best light. You don't wanna know why? Because there's one who seeks it. And that's a promise that I'm trying to get you to see. And there have been so many times in my life where I wanted to promote myself. I mean, I'm human. I wanted to put myself out there. I wanted people to think that I'm better than I am. I mean, I wrote college essays and you know, had job descriptions and those kinds of things, right? I have a resume, like I did all this awesome stuff. 
And we try to, and again, I'm not saying that that in of itself is inherently bad, but what I am saying is this, are you trying to just do it for someone to know you or are you trying to do it for them to think that you're more than you are? And I've had plenty of instances where something in me wanted to promote myself and I really felt the spirit of the Lord say, Jason, shut your mouth and I'll speak for you. And I've used this example before, but I'll use it again because it's one of the most vivid ones that I have. But I'll never forget when I was applying for this position as pastor of this church, it came down to me and another candidate. And they actually chose the other one first and called me and said, I'm sorry, you didn't get the job. They chose the other one. Can you believe that? I know, that's what I thought. But I'll never forget it. I was sitting in my office in Corpus Christi, Texas, and I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Jason, shut your mouth, and I'll speak for you. So I did. I didn't speak back. I didn't, like, do they know what they're doing? Thank you. Got on my knees and prayed. 24 hours later, they called me back. Said, you're never gonna believe this. They've now changed their mind and wanna go with you. Now, the other guy's a great guy. I'm not saying he would have been the wrong choice. It's not about that. What I'm saying is, you think, why did God do it that way? I think God did it that way to teach me a lesson. Jason, this ain't about you. I'm gonna get who I want to be the pastor of my church. I just need you to know. I don't need you to glorify yourself to do it. And so I've tried to live my life. Pastoring this church will be 12 years in January, not trying to glorify myself. Why? Because there's one who seeks it. I don't have to. And I'm trying to show you that because that's how Jesus was trying to show them because one of those ways is demonic. The other way is godly. Now, that's not argument enough. Let me show you the last way that Jesus argues. He argues with them, not attacking them as people, but by offering them a greater promise. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus said, if you keep my words, you will not see death. Now, anyone who's ever spent any time in English, and those of you in high school, unfortunately, you are, right? I say unfortunately, you may think it's unfortunate. I thought it was unfortunate, but if you're an English teacher, I don't mean that it's unfortunate, all right? But what I'm getting at is we learned how to communicate or write. And I'll never forget, because I was a bad writer, which I've taken school and I'm going back to school and I have to write a lot of papers. So it's, again, it's kind of God's cruel joke in my life. But in my, and I've mentioned her before, but my, one of my middle school teachers helped me so much. And one of the things she told me was this phrase, this if then statement. Was, was a great way to argue, to say, if this, then this. And the if is conditional, which means it's laying out the condition that must be met in order to get the result, which is the then. Now, this statement doesn't have the word then in it, but it is inferred because it says, if anyone keeps my words. You could say it like this, then he will never see death. And what I'm trying to show you is the way Jesus argued was this. Listen, your flesh, this world, the devil are going to make you promises. And we need to understand this. 
The reason why you and I make decisions is ultimately not because we're on a truth quest. We are on a joy quest. And the argument of the Bible is not one of truth against joy. The argument of the Bible is the way to the most joy is through the truth, not lies. And I told you this last week, anybody who says sin isn't fun was doing it wrong. Sin is fun for a season. The Bible even says that. But what I'm trying to get back is I'm trying to peel back the layers and get into why Jesus is arguing, arguing this way with them. And here's what I'm trying to get you to see. The reason why you and I sin is because there is a promise attached to the end of the action. That's why we do it. In fact, if you want to take notes, write this one down. I've got it on the screen. Every practice and every pleasure has a promise. Every practice and every pleasure has a promise. They do. And your flesh, my flesh, is going to lie to us and say, if you do this, it will be more fun. If you do this, you'll be happier. If you engage in this practice, if you engage in this pleasure, it will make you happier, more whole, more fulfilled, more joy. Jesus talked in Matthew about the Beatitudes. It means blessed. And that's the idea of, of all of life happiness, fulfillment. And Jesus offers different types of promises. And what I'm trying to show you is his are better. Because the world's promises ultimately fail to deliver. But you and I, listen to me, you and I will never say no to that practice or that pleasure if we don't attach to the end of it a greater promise. If you're taking notes, here's my second point. Because the power is in the promise. The power is in the promise. You wanna know why you say yes to things that you now look back on and regret? Because it promised you something. And maybe that promise came through a middle school boy, a middle school girl. You say, why middle school? Because that's when everything changed. Maybe that promise came through a business partner. Maybe that promise came through your own flesh that said, if you make Ben and Jerry your best friends, you'll be happy. You guys know I talk a lot about food. And I've been straight with you. That is legit one of the greatest struggles in my life. Eminem, my greatest friends, right? But here's what I'm, this was so huge for me to learn because I thought, listen to me, I thought that the Christian life meant just saying no to a bunch of things that were pleasurable. I mean, almost any teenager thinks that. But what I'm trying to argue with you is this. It's not just that we say no to those pleasures. We actually say yes to a greater one. We actually say yes to a greater promise. Let me show you what I mean. One of my favorite pastors of all time, John Piper, says it like this, and I've got his quote here on the screen. The root power of sin 
is severed by the power of a superior promise. The root power of, remember the power is in the promise. So the power of sin will be cut, not when we just look at sin and say no, but when we look at Jesus and say yes to a greater promise. And you say, well, what is that greater promise? It's the then part. You will not see death. You will not see death. See, here's the problem with sin. Here's the problem with the devil. Here's the problem with our flesh. Here's the problem with the world. It's not that they're not pleasurable. It's that they're only pleasurable for a season, not for eternity. That's the problem. They ultimately end in death. Now, sadly, we've been in a season for the last almost two years where we've experienced, on average, more deaths than normal. And I don't know what your story has been, but I know there's a lot of families that have had to bury people that they loved. And when you start thinking about death, what you start thinking about is the permanency of it. And that's why grieving is so hard because you have to go through the stages and, and some people say there's five, some people say there's seven, however many there are, you gotta go through them. It's shock, anger, you know, bargaining, and then you finally get to acceptance. And, and the step of acceptance is they're gone. They're not coming back. We have to learn how to start to incorporate that in our life. And I'll never forget the very first time I watched someone die. I was in my early 20s. Hadn't been a pastor for very long. In fact, I was still in college. And I was on staff at a church part-time, trying to make ends meet, going to college still, driving the school bus at the same time, hustling. You know, we didn't call it a side hustle back then. We just called it working. And I was, one day, uh, there was a lot of pastors, a fairly large church, and each pastor had assigned hospital duties. And so that would come for, for me about every six weeks, almost kind of like jury duty, that idea. So one day I was assigned to hospital duty to visit this guy who was a part of our church who was dying. And I'll never forget, I walked into his room. He was laying in the bed. His son was there. His wife was there. His son was older than me. And I watched them take him off life support and watched him take his last breaths. And he was gone. And I'll never forget that moment. In fact, I look back on it now as one of the greatest blessings in my life. You say, why in the world was that a blessing? You wanna know why? Because the best thing I could know as a young 20s male was to know that death was coming for me too. So how I live my life mattered. How he lived his life mattered. And it was the most surreal thing in my life. And I had loved ones who had died prior to that, but I had not watched it. And the promise that Jesus is making here is if we keep his words, we won't see that. Now you say, hold on a second. 
Christians still die. Yes, they do. But as you're gonna see in a second, the Jewish people will argue back to Jesus and they will use the word taste. They say, you say you will not taste death. And so the idea that Jesus is getting at here is not that you won't die, but you won't taste it in a way that others do. You won't see and experience it the way that others do. And here's the best way I can explain it because I haven't experienced it myself. Is something miraculous, something supernatural happens at the end of life for a Christian where yes, you're dying physically, but supernaturally somehow, some way your spirit doesn't experience it in a way that those who don't know Jesus do. You are spared, and, and, and the best way I can explain it is you go from life to life. You don't go from life to death. As Paul described it, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with Christ. And I've heard a lot of ways that people have explained this where they get to the end of their life and they see a light or they see Jesus, they have vivid dreams. And, and so I don't know, but what I know is the promise that Jesus is saying here is if we will keep his word, we won't see that. We won't experience that. We will go from life to life. And that promise, listen to me, that promise is greater than any other promise the devil can make you. It's greater. And that's what I'm trying to get you to see. Jesus argues from the position of a greater promise. And here's why that's important. You and I will never keep his word if it doesn't lead to something greater than what we could get if we didn't keep his word. Because the power's in the promise. And so here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus offers you more than what the, the devil, your sin, your flesh, or the world can offer you. Because every one of those promises is short-lived. Watch this. Death beats it. Death beats it. And in the same way, the greatest thing, one of the greatest things that happened to me in my 20s was I experienced death. That would be a great blessing to all of us as well, is to see that and understand that Jesus offers us a way out of the sting of that. And if we don't believe that promise, then we will never obey his words. But that's how he argues. As C.S. Lewis, great believer, said, God doesn't find our desires too strong. He finds them too weak. Because he is offering us what he called a holiday at the sea, which would be our idea of a cruise ship. He's offering us that, but we are content to make mud pies in the dirt. See, the problem with you and I, listen to me, the problem with you and I is not that our desire for sin is too strong, our desire for Jesus is too weak. And so the way that we attack the power of sin is we look at a greater promise, that we believe the power behind the promise that God says, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to say no to your flesh. I know it's hard to say no to the things that feel natural to you. We've been arguing about this for the last several weeks, and by arguing, I'm not saying you and me fighting, but I've been making the argument that this is why we can't live by the mantra, well, this is how I feel. 
This is what feels natural to me, or I was born this way, because if I give in to the power of my flesh, it just leads me to an inferior promise. But the only way out of that power is to believe a better promise. And that's what Jesus is offering you. And that is how we can have conversations with people that say, why should I listen to Jesus? Because what he offers is better. Now let's go on, verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Oh, you do, huh? Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, I highlighted those because that's the title of this week's message. I'll come back to it. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. There's that phrase I was talking about earlier. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Watch that. What I told you earlier, glorifying yourself is the sign that you're following the teaching of demons. Why? Because if you glorify yourself, it's nothing. You can't put enough weight behind your own glory to make it actually worth something. Someone else has to do it. And look at Jesus. He says, it is my father who glorifies me and of whom you say he is our God. Again, side note, you want to know why I don't have to glorify myself? Because God, God glorifying me is much weightier than me doing it myself. So therefore, I can humble myself because God glorifying me means so much more than me trying to glorify myself. Verse 55, he says, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. ruh -roh. Watch this. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Understand what Jesus just said. Remember context. He is having an argument. He's having a conversation with people that don't know that they're slaves to sin. And he's saying the way to beat that slavery is the power of a greater promise. If you abide in me, you'll know the truth. It'll set you free. If you keep my word, you won't see death. And then he says this. You claim to know God, but you don't know him. And then he says, but I do know him. And to give a qualifier for how you know that Jesus knows him, Jesus says this, I keep his word. Church, listen to me. And this is where I like to push on you a lot because I want to pastor you well. The only way you can know that you know him is if you keep his word. That's it. But unfortunately, a lot, in large part in the American church, we have come up with different standards to tell how someone knows him. Particularly over the last couple hundred years after the father of modern revivalism, a guy by the name of Charles Finney, you can go look him up later, 
but he would do these huge revivals and he invented a new way for people to make a decision for Jesus. It's where they walked an aisle and came down front. And you may be thinking, well, I thought that was a Baptist thing. Or I thought that was whatever. It came from a guy named Charles Finney. Go look it up. Because it became a way to count people better. And it became a way to, in some ways, get people to make a decision. Walk an aisle. I'll never forget when I started pastoring here over a decade ago, we didn't have people walk the aisle and people told me then, well, if they didn't walk an aisle, they're not really saved. For real. And my argument was, well, how do you know if they're saved or not? Well, they didn't make a public profession of faith. Jesus said if they denied him in public, he'll deny them. I said, that's why we have baptism. Baptism is the public profession of faith, biblically speaking, not walking an aisle. Now, if you walked an aisle, I'm not bragging on you. I walked an aisle three times. <laughs> For real. Got dunked three times. I've said that before because I wanted to make sure that joker took. <laughs> I'm not saying that's sinful or wrong. Here's what I am saying, though. That's not the test. Because, see, there's a lot of people who walked an aisle, got dunked, didn't live their life for Jesus, and then died, and people asked, are they a Christian? Now, I might be talking about one of your family members, so please don't hear me being hateful. I'm just trying to be biblical. And I've had conversations with people, well, he walked an aisle 20 years ago. Okay. Is he saved? I can't tell you. Here's what I know. If you're wondering whether or not I was a Christian, I don't know about you, but I don't want there to be any doubt. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying they're not. I've said this before. Maybe they were like bamboos. The seed went in. It was there, but it took them six years before you saw anything. And here's what. You can't lose your salvation. I want you to hear me say that. You can't Lose something you didn't earn. But let me also say this. You also can't lose something that you never had. You say, well, how do I know? Do you keep his word? That's how you know. Now that's tough, right? But again, remember, I'm trying to pastor you well because I don't want you to grow up in this church thinking I raised my hand because we don't walk aisles here. I raised my hand, I'm good. But yet, there is no desire in your heart to live by his words. And you will never live by his words if you don't see that he actually offers you more. He actually offers you a greater promise. That's the whole argument I'm trying to make today. You know that you lo love him and that you know him if you follow him, but you will never follow him if you don't believe that it will actually lead to more joy. That it will actually lead to you not tasting death. It will actually lead to truth. It will actually lead to more freedom. 
And that's how the devil gets us. The devil gets us by the power of an inferior promise. But remember the question they asked him, who do you make yourself out to be? Let me leave you with these last three verses and I'll close it out. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what's those next two words there? Let's try that again. Before Abraham was, I am. You realize what he just said, right? He just claimed to be God. And if you don't believe that's what he said, look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was a ninja and went out of the temple. That's the, that's the JSV, the Jason Standard Version. But he hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because he just said, I'm God. That word, and it's one word, even though in English it's two, I am, is the Greek word to be. Jesus is. Jesus is existence. Jesus is. And watch this. Everything that is came from his isness. And I know that makes no sense, but you're with me. Everything that is came from him. That's what he just said. And that's why they picked up stones to kill him. Because they knew that's what he just said. And what he's saying is, you remember when God talked to Moses? That was me. And I told you a few weeks ago, when he bent down to write on the stones of the temple, he's saying, that was my finger that wrote those tablets that gave those to Moses. That was me. And here's what I'm trying to argue with you. And don't let this be an argument, all right? But what I'm trying to convince you to see is why you should go with what he says. Because he's God. And why you shouldn't go with what you say. Why you shouldn't go with what your flesh says. Why you shouldn't go with what your friends say. Why you shouldn't go with what the world says. What our culture says. And this is the greatest threat to every generation. Sin, flesh, the devil, and the world. Every generation, we have to fight back against the lies of the devil, and we only do that with the greater truth that leads to a greater promise from God. Because there's, and I said this last week, there's a lot of people today that claim to know God, but yet they live their life by the mantra, well, I feel. And hear me, I understand how countercultural this is. But people say, I feel this way. I was born this way. This is what feels right and natural to me. There's a lot of that and a little of, yes, I feel that, yet you say, yet you say, this is what marriage is. Yet you say, this is how I should live my life. Yet you say, this is what I should do with my finances. Yet you say, this is what I should do. 
And church, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Not only if you don't do that, you don't know Jesus, but if you do do that, it'll go better for you. You'll have more joy, more peace, more, oh gosh, more life. See, God is not against you. He's not against your happiness. He's not against your joy. He's for you. And he's so for you that he sent Jesus to die for you because someone had to purchase the promise. And, 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 he, and I'm just being honest with you, all my cards on the table. I don't see how anybody would not do what Jesus said. I don't mean that arrogant because sometimes I don't. But I'm saying more than anything, that's what I want to do. See, no person can promise me what God promises me. You can't promise me that. The world can't promise me that. My flesh can't promise me that. And I hope we raise up a generation of people in this church that says, I know that's what I want to do. Yet you say, you who is God says that if I keep your word, I won't see death. So they can kill me for saying this, but they only gave me a promotion into a greater promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And God, you, you know that in my own life, so many times I believe lies. And the reason why I believe them is because I believe the promise behind them. But God, I am so burdened for a generation of people that are believing lies. And a lot of them claim to know you, but they don't live by keeping your word. And God, I don't know the status of someone's heart. You do. But what I do know that my job is to proclaim the truth to people so that you can change their hearts. So God, I ask you to do that right now. No one looking around or talking here as we close, if, if there's never been a point in time in your life, listen to me, not where you walked an aisle or raised your hand, but if there's never been a point in time in your life where you believed a greater promise. Where you realized that sin couldn't offer you what Jesus could. And so you made a decision to trust him. And you made a decision to live your life according to his word. 
If that has never happened, then today it can happen. Right there where you are, again, this is why you don't have to walk in aisle because it's ultimately not between you and us. That's where baptism comes into play. But if you have not trusted in Jesus and been saved, then today you can confess and believe. And so if you want to pray with me, you don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son, Jesus, to die in my place for my sins. And I confess that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus is offering me life. So I want to trust him. Would you save me? Forgive me. And now give me the power by your spirit to live according to his word. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just pray to trust Jesus, we do want to know about it because we have a gift for you. We want to give you a Bible. So if you just trusted Jesus and you're one of our locations, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. And just a moment, whether you're online or in person, you can fill out our digital connection card. Let us know who you are so that we can follow up with you because we want to help you. But then those of us who have made that decision, and, and if you are like me and you are convicted by the areas of your life that are not in line with his word, then the message today to us is believe his word enough to keep it, to obey it, to observe it. And we will see and experience greater joy than we could if we gave in to our flesh or we gave in to the culture around us. Father, pray today that not only would people trust you, but they would keep trusting you. For those of you that just trusted you for the first time, God, thank you. For those of us who trusted you years ago, I pray that we would keep trusting you because this is a battle of life and death, especially those of us in the room that are maybe younger and still figuring out who we are and what we feel. God, I pray that you would help us to see that going with our feelings never ends in the destination we thought it would. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage to say, this is what I feel, yet you say. And that we would line up our lives with your word. Because if we do, we'll know the truth and it'll set us free and we won't see death. So thank you for a greater promise. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.